Welcome to Breitbart News Daily. I'm Mike Slater. Thanks for being here. Slater at Breitbart.com is my email. Slater Radio on the Twitter. Super fun show today. It was great. For two hours, three hours, we talked about mostly work ethic. Uh, So we'll play here. We had calls the whole time. It was great. Fantastic. Every single caller was wonderful. And it's it's right before Christmas. So we (laughs) kind of had a a relaxed vibe today, which I think we all kind of need. So uh, let's just play our opening segment which set the stage for this. I had no intention of talking about work ethic. I think even at one point in the first hour, we had some calls about work ethic, and I was like, oh, you know, let's table that until the new year. And then no one wanted to table it. We just, everyone wanted to plow forward. It's like, okay, let's do it. Uh, and we did a little Trump talk as well. Uh, but this work ethic talk is much more important. Then we talked to Dr. Sebastian Gorka, and we talked to him all about work ethic as well. So it's the work ethic hour here of Breitbart News Daily. Uh, and it started off with a chat about uh, the biggest illegal immigrant surge in our nation's history going on right now. Not getting as much news because of what happened in Colorado. We talked a little about that too. Uh, but what's really happening in our country right now is the biggest invasion in our history. Here it is. yesterday all that talk about the the Colorado Supreme Court to be continued of course the US Supreme Court will hear this on uh, January 4th I like when things move quickly you know a lot of these Supreme Court decisions are like very excited about it's like oh and they'll hear it in August (laughs) like what August can't wait that long so they're gonna hear this a couple days which is uh, is nice Uh, we'll talk so like the Supreme Court's gonna slap it down clearly and then when that happens, we're going to hear all this talk about how the Supreme Court is illegitimate and how it needs to be burned to the ground. And then if they do literally burn it to the ground, they'll call it freedom of speech. We know how it works. We know the game. And now we got Colorado, excuse me, uh, California and Michigan wanting to jump on the bandwagon. The kick Trump off the ballot bandwagon. So here, and that's just to ramp up the pressure. So here's the deal. We'll go quick and then we'll talk more about it later. Um, the left knows that this is absurd. It's absolutely absurd. So the only play here is to get power in numbers. Up the ante, put more pressure on the Supreme Court. If it's just Colorado that says Trump can't be on the ballot, then it's going to be easy for the Supreme Court to rebuke Colorado. But if 23 states kick Trump off the ballot, or even if five or six big ones. Well, now the Supreme Court's going to have to answer to all of those states. And here's what it's going to happen. Let's say uh, let's say uh, 12 states, including California, kick Trump off the ballot. You're going to hear stuff like, oh, the Supreme Court just uh, denied the will of 12 states that make up 62% of the population because it'll be California and Michigan and New York and some of the big states, right? So it'll add up to be something like 62% of the population. They're like, oh, the California, uh, the, or excuse me, the, the illegitimate Supreme Court denying the will of the people, of 63% of the people, an illegitimate court, Trump's court, protecting the insurrectionist against the voice of the people and against the Constitution. It'll be something like that. And it'll be so mind-twistingly idiotic. Everyone will be like, what? Like, we, no. And then that hesitation, I won't mean the left will win. I've won the argument because it's so absurd. So we'll see how many other states can, can jump on this before January 4th. All right, so we'll chat more about it later because uh, we'll talk about the lieutenant governor of California. There's some updates there that are interesting. Also, there's one line from this 217-page ruling from the state Supreme Court in Colorado. There's one line that a lot of people on the left are picking up on, which is interesting because it's long. It's a 217-page thing, but they keep picking up on one sentence of it. So clearly there's a concerted talking point effort here. So that makes it worthy of our discussion. So that is all coming up. Now, we got a bunch of phone calls yesterday. Oh, oh, oh we got to talk about uh, Article or Section 5 too. 
Bill, can you remind me to do that section five? I got a bunch of phone calls yesterday from people being like, what's later? Section five, section five. Uh, and I, I got some stuff on section five that's worth sharing. But we got also a bunch of phone calls, emails, notes yesterday. Slater at Breitbart.com. Slater Radio on the Twitter. Uh, what are they distracting you from? What is this distracting us from? Now, this can always be said about anything, whenever anything happens. <laughs> right? Anything happens, and we talk about it, and they're like, but what are you just, you know, even if it's a coincidence, it can always be said, what are they distracting you from? And I'm not one to believe that they, they announce things on certain days in order to distract you from a thing. I think a lot of things just happen. I think for the most part, it's probably a coincidence. But it just so happens that we are in the middle of a record surge at the border right now. A record surge. Not high numbers at the border. Record. The headline of the New York Post the other day was surrender. Biden does nothing as a record number illegally cross the border. Are you with me on the record? This is an invasion. And I, for one, am more concerned about the invasion than the insurrection. Bill Malugan, he said, uh, video from a contact on the ground in Eagle Pass, Texas right now shows a mass of thousands of migrants waiting to be processed by Border Patrol after they crossed illegally today. I've spent hundreds of days there over the last two plus years and I've never seen it like this. It's like a... Um, it's like a, it's like a, it's like the lawn of a rock concert, or it's, it's more than you know they um they're wearing like these metallic uh, thin blanket things like these like space blankets I don't know I don't know what you call these things but they I know they give them to you after you run a marathon so you run a marathon they hand you this blanket thing like it made of like thin tin foil and everyone's wearing these so it looks like. It looks like the end of a marathon where everyone's milling about waiting for a banana, standing in line for bananas and bagels. You know I mean? It's just a huge crowd of people. And for Malugan to say he's never seen anything like this before is a lot because that's what he does. He stays at the border, walks around, like, you know, look, look, takes videos of things like this happening. He's never seen it like this before. So that's also happening right now. Breitbart.com. 64% of Americans want the federal government to penalize and fine employers that hire illegal aliens for U.S. jobs. Mandatory E-Verified. 64% of Americans want that. Only 32% oppose such a policy. So 32% want illegal immigrants to take people's jobs. And 4% said they were unsure. 61% uh, of swing voters said they support nationwide mandatory e-verify as well as 64% of self-described moderates. So this is a very popular policy among swing voters and moderates. Eight in 10 Republicans said they want to see mandatory e-verify nationwide. Eight in 10. 68% of working and lower middle class Americans who are most likely to compete with illegal aliens for jobs, they want e-verify. That's that's as much support for pretty much anything you'll ever see. 60-something percent. That's about as good as you'll get for anything. Tom Cotton and Mitt Romney had legislation that would impose mandatory E-Verify nationwide while gradually raising the federal minimum wage to $11 an hour by 2028. Uh, I don't see the connection between those two. That, there must be some give and take here. It's, it's Republicans saying, fine, we'll raise the minimum wage if we have E-Verify. I don't know if I'd make that trade because E-Verify is a, uh, E-Verify would not be guaranteed to be enforced. You know, so the, the, the minimum wage will, of course, be enforced. As soon as they raise the minimum wage, everyone's going to have to pay the minimum wage. Uh, but as soon as they enforce, or as soon as they you know, make E-Verify, people won't necessarily enforce it. It'll be just like every other policy related to the border. Like, we have all the laws we need at the border. 
It's just whether or not we enforce them. So you raise the minimum wage, which will be enforced immediately, and then you get an e-verify system, which won't be funded and won't be enforced, and no one will use it, and it won't matter, and nothing will change. It's like, oh, well, we just got hosed again. Uh, here's Tom Cotton. American workers today compete against millions of illegal immigrants for too few jobs with wages that are too low. That's unfair. Ending the black market for illegal labor will open up jobs for Americans. Raising the minimum wage will allow Americans filling those jobs to better support their families. Our bill does both. Okay. So DeSantis did this. Is anyone in Florida, can anyone in Florida speak to this now that we're a couple months into this? Anyone with 25 or more employees, July 1st, it went into effect. So I, know, so I remember there were videos right after he passed it of construction sites that were empty. So how's that, now that that's had time to settle out, how's that worked? Have Americans taken those jobs or are those just jobs Americans don't want? There's no American roofers, I guess, ever. I don't know. How's, how's that going in Florida right now? You verify in Florida. We're good six months in. So here's the New York Times on that. Tim Conlon, president of Reliant, a roofing company in Jacksonville, said a subcontractor had recently turned down a project after his workers refused to travel to Florida, preferring to stay in Georgia and the Carolinas. He also said that hourly rates for jobs had increased about 10% since the bill was signed into law in May. So wages went up. I think that's exactly, exactly the point. Wages went up. But then this gets into the conversation we had two days ago, if you remember, with U.S. Steel. How should we look at economic issues? Should we look at, it, look at economic issues from the perspective of the consumer or the perspective of the workers? Because if we're looking at it from the perspective of the consumers, you're going to want the illegal immigrants with the lower wages. And if you look at it from the perspective of the workers... You're going to want no illegal immigrants and higher wages. So what do you do? Maybe that's not the right question. Maybe the right question is, should we look at economic issues from the perspective of Americans or foreigners? Maybe that'll clear up the question. You look after Americans and you let the chips fall where they may. This is the mayor of Chicago, a proud sanctuary city, talking about the governor of Florida, or uh, Texas. The issue is not just how we respond in the city of Chicago, it's the fact that we have a governor, a governor, an elected official in the state of Texas that is placing families on buses without shoes, cold, wet, tired, hungry, afraid, traumatized, and then they come to the city of Chicago where we have homelessness, we have mental health clinics that have been shut down and closed, you have people who are seeking employment. The, the governor of Texas needs to take a look in the mirror of the chaos that he is causing for this country. This is not just a Chicago dynamic. He is attacking our country. Yeah, Texas is part of the country, Mayor. Texas has cities with mayors. Texas has cities with all those problems as well. And you need to feel the pain of it as well. It's, that, it's as easy as it could possibly be. I just, I, 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 I never, there was a moment when Lori Lightfoot got voted out of office. I was like, oh, wow, hope for Chicago. And then, you know, a few weeks later, they voted for someone even worse than Lori Lightfoot. Like, oh. Oh, okay. I guess we're going with this guy instead. Let me share one more illegal immigrant thing. We'll take some phone calls. Um, we also got to talk about that statue in uh, in Arlington. Lots to do today. So I heard an interview, and I don't I don't know what I think about this point, by the way. But I'm just going to throw it here, and we'll see what we think. I heard an interview with Eric Weinstein about immigration, and he made two points. The first question was. Which cultures are better? And Weinstein said, eh, I don't need to go to value judgments yet. It's not necessary at this time. He said, I don't, I don't want to talk about better or worse. Let's just talk about compatibility. 
He said, if one culture, let's say one culture uh, uh, says women should dress modestly. And another culture says women should wear almost no clothes at all anywhere. How compatible are these? Well, not very, actually. You know, which one's better or worse? I don't even need to go there. It's, what, are these compatible? Now, I can make a statement on which is better. I'll make an argument for which is better of, of this example. But that, that's not it. It's do they work together? And now you can do that with everything. We can do that with family structure. Okay? One, one culture has, a, has a, you know, the nuclear family structure. Another culture has uh, a, a larger family structure. Okay, what's better? Uh, we don't need to go there yet. Do they, are they compatible? Maybe. There's uh, different cultures with different views on marriage, different views of se- on sex, different views on child rearing. Guys, the child rearing is such a good one. I was talking to a friend about uh, people my age making friends with young kids. It's very difficult because you have to find, oh, I'll forget them all. I think there were five. You have to find someone who's in, uh, who you would normally be friends with. So you have to find like adults that you would, that you like. And like you, their their kids have to be of similar ages, right? If if you meet someone at the park and their kids are fifteen and your kids are five, like that doesn't like that's harder, right? But if they're if they're all six, then then we go. Uh, what was it? You have to be like them. You have to you have to have similar child rearing philosophies. Otherwise, there's just too much. It's too different. Oh, and you have to live like relatively near each other. You're not going to drive 40 minutes every day to go play at the park. I think there was one more. But anyway, the, the similar child rearing thing. So, so there's different ways to raise kids. I'm not going to make a value judgment on which is better or worse right now. Not necessary. The point is, are these compatible? They may not be. There's different religions. There's different views on work. There's different views on time. There's different views on... Uh, Freedom. Are they compatible? In England, they drive on the left-hand side of the road. In America, we drive on the right-hand side of the road. Which is better? I don't know, actually. I've never driven on the left-hand side of the road. I like driving on the right-hand side of the road. Natural to me, normal to me. Don't think about it. But if I gave left-hand side of the road a chance, maybe I'd be like, oh, left-hand's better. I don't know. I don't even know if there's really been an analysis on this. Which one's better? We drive on the right. Which one's better? I don't know. What's important to me is are these two things compatible? It turns out this one, these two are not. You cannot live in a country that both drives on the right-hand side of the road and the left-hand side of the road. That will not work. Who's better, the Bloods or the Crips? I don't know. Maybe there's no need for a value judgment at this time. Let's just sur- let's just make sure we don't house them in the same cell block. Remember, do we play the? I don't know if we played the clip. Do we play the clip the other day of the Iranian woman who lives in Finland, and she's like, "Yeah, it's really hard to live here. There's so many Finns everywhere. <laughs> it's everywhere I go. There's Finns." Fins everywhere. It's really hard for people like me because there's so many fins here. But maybe that'll change one day and there'll be more Iranians. <laughs> like, what? Finland is for people from Finland. Okay, but how does Iranian culture and Finnish culture, which is better? Don't know, don't care right now. Are they compatible? Because that's the first point. That's interesting. And then we'll get into value judgments, which I'm happy to do. But here's the second point. That's the one more relevant here. He said, uh, you know, people, when they talk about illegal immigration, they talk about how it affects people, medium, low wage jobs. And then, so that's one conversation we have. But then we have this other conversation over here about highly skilled, highly educated STEM workers in technology and engineering. Oh, by the way, did you hear about bird scooters? Do you live in a city with bird scooters? San Diego is one of these bird scooter cities. Bird scooters. It's like um, they just you just leave the scooter wherever, and then you ride it, and then you just drop it off, and you just leave it on the sidewalk, right? So bird scooters had a valuation of 200, and, no, this can't be right. It must have been 2.5 billion. 
I was in my brain. I was gonna think two point two hundred fifty billion. That can't be it. Yeah, two point five. Still crazy. Two point five billion was their valuation, and now their valuation is one point six million. <laughs> their their stock price went from two hundred fifty dollars a share to eight cents. Unbelievable! What an epic collapse that is. Anywho, it's neither here nor there. Uh, so you got these STEM workers, tech, engineering, science, whatever, and apparently. We can't make our own scientists anymore. We can't make enough scientists in America. So we had to come up with an H-1B visa to bring in foreign PhDs. We need to bring in the best scientists from China. We got to bring in the best scientists from the Philippines. I don't know. We got to bring the best scientists in from around the world. And most people, yours truly included, was just like, oh, okay, yeah, that's okay. I'll take your word for it that that's a thing that you need. And Eric Weinstein was the first person I ever heard the argument that maybe we don't even need that. So his point is that these, these science advocacy groups, the National Scientific Foundation, there's all these different science advocacy groups, they weren't advocating for science and they weren't advocating for scientists. It turns out they were advocating for the employers of scientists. They were in bed with the employers and the employers did not want to pay a lot of money for American PhDs, PhD level scientists. And it was these groups on behalf of the employers that were all arguing for more immigration of PhDs into America. So Weinstein went on, and he's like, why? This is weird. So he went on a mission to find whatever study they use to justify why we need more foreign PhDs to come into America. By the way, like, a ch- like Chinese PhDs to come here, work for a couple of years at a company, and then go back to China and steal all the information and bring it back to China. So here's what uh, Weinstein said. He found the study uh, in 1986, and the National Immigration Act of 1990 is what created the H-1B visa. Weinstein said their aims instead were to keep American scientific employers from having to pay the full U.S. market price of, a, of high-skilled labor. They hope to keep the U.S. research system sta- staffed with employees classified as trainees, students, and postdocs for the benefit of employers. You don't have to pay them as much. The result would be to render the U.S. scientific workforce more docile and pliable to authority and senior researchers by attempting to ensure this labor market sector is always flooded largely by employer-friendly visa holders who lack full rights to respond to wage signals in the U.S. market. Does that make sense? So it's like, okay, well... um, we could pay all these expensive Americans for this job, for these jobs here at these STEM companies, whatever those, like, like, I don't even know what these STEM companies are, right? Facebook, I whatever, these tech companies, Qualcomm. Or we can pay this Chinese guy like half the price. Now there's cost to that too because they come in, they train him, and then he leaves as opposed to someone who could work there their whole lives, but, you know, they're thinking short-sighted. So here's the study that he found, 1986. Um, They had the, so the, this was the salary in 1984. So they had the real salary of scientists from 1982 to 1984 and then projection from there. So at the time, a PhD scientist made $65,000 and they projected that in 2023, excuse me, 2003, so 20 years or so, that the scientists would make over $100,000. And they said that if you're an employer, that's way too high. So let's flood the market with Indians and Pakistanis and Chinese PhDs to keep wages low. I don't know if that's true, but now I'm questioning even the need for H-1B visas. Because I think that was a thing even conservatives were like, okay, we don't we need illegal immigration for, because uh, that affects low-skilled workers, uh, but we'll allow it all these, uh, these, these high-skilled immigrants with an H-1B visa. Like, well, I don't even know if we need that, actually. Maybe that's not even wise. Maybe we employ Americans. Maybe we have Instead of like, we think about like high skilled, low skill, or what's best for the employer or the employee or the worker or the uh, uh, customer. Maybe just, it's like, what's best for Americans? What's best for America first?
back to Breitbart News Daily. Talk to Dr. Sebastian Gorka. And I love talking to Dr. Gorka about life and his life, his family. Uh, we did a lot of that. And then we talked about the real divide in this country. It's not right, left. It's not conservative and Democrats. It's much more profound than that. What is on the menu in the Gorka household this Christmas Eve? Katie, what's on the menu for Christmas Eve? Oh, my goodness. Um, lobster thermidor. Lobster, my son is making lobster thermidor. Well, hold on, hold on. What, I don't know what that is. Lobster what? What's the second word? Well, what is lobster thermidor? <laughs> it's, it's, we just looked up the fact. My son is an amazing. He spent several summers working in the kitchen of a, of a restaurant, so he's an amazing cook. And he just wanted to look up the most challenging thing. Last year it was beef wellington, you know, the sirloin of the beef wrapped in pastry. So he did that last year. It was mind-blowing. And this year we picked lobster thermidor. So I'll tell you on the day after Christmas. And so, so this is, it's a French dish, diced lobster meat, stuffed in the shell, buttery wine sauce, sprinkled cheese, broiled. Okay, so like, yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, so hold on. I'm, right. It's the lobster that's been fancily cooked and then put back into the lobster tail. So it's Like a twice-baked potato of, of lobster. Yeah, beautiful. <laughs> um, I'm so intrigued by your son. I don't understand this person. Uh, <laughs> like, like what, a, what a renaissance man. Like a master oh, chef on top I mean, of it? But th- think of this. He was a double major in college, uh, classics and pre-med, and at the same time, D1 rower, getting up at 4 a.m. to take his team out and row. And then in, for the summers when he was a teenager, he worked his backside off at my brother-in-law's restaurant. So he's bigger than me, stronger than me, smarter than me. On, on his birthday, from age 14 to 18, uh, at the breakfast table, we'd strip down to our waist and we would arm wrestle each other. And my, my daughter would film us. On the 18th birthday, we were like tied for about three minutes. And I said, okay, dude, you're stronger than me as it should be. You've won. <laughs> I think of your, your son's like Reacher. He's just, he's like, yeah, like uh, yeah, yeah. He's not, he's not quite as heavy. Reacher's a little bit getting. The latest season of Reacher, he looks, uh, they take his shirt off in episode three. He looks a little bit like Arnold at his peak. So my, th- think of Michelangelo and, and David's uh, statue. That's what my son is. He's not, <laughs> he's not, cook- he's not 400 pounds. Cooking lobster th- thermidor in the kitchen, which is unbelievable. Yeah. All right, so this actually ties yeah. in down to it because I want to, I also want to talk to you about, <clears throat> you wrote a wonderful article. Um, and AMAC, we'll talk about that. I want to talk about the, the Trump in Colorado. But the whole last two hours, and we didn't even mean to do this, but we got into a big conversation about work ethic. Uh-huh. What, were, what were you doing professionally when your son was, I don't know, like, like 5 to 12? Kind of like that coming of age age when he was able, like really was looking at his dad in a profile. Yeah, yeah, way. yeah. So that would have been 15 years ago, 17 years. So we, uh, we moved to America from Europe in 2008. So my son was seven then, and I started teaching. I became a the, the only only in America can a, a green card holder, a foreigner, get a job as a civil servant in the Defense Department. And I was teaching the military counterterrorism and irregular warfare. So I did that for five and a half years. Uh, in Europe, we had our own think tank. My wife and I doing national security issues. But yeah, so I was um, I was teaching foreign officers, allied officers, and the U.S. military in a master's program here in, in D.C. There's something called National Defense University, uh, the oldest American at base in America. It's uh, the uh, Fort McNair. Um, so I did that for five and a half years. Then I moved over to Quantico, and I started teaching the Marines the same kind of stuff. And then I ended up in the White House. So for most, for most of his teen years, uh, I was teaching the military, and he got uh, every year I'd bring them home. I'd actually cook goulash for for my offices in my in my cadre in my in my in my um, little uh, you know syndicates. So he got he got to hang around with a lot of cool dudes. Oh, that's neat. Oh, so, and so- Bragg. I used to teach at Bragg, and so when when the the Green Berets from the Q course course came to DC, he'd meet all of those guys. So I think that that was a big inspiration for my son as well, yes. seeing all these super smart, super fit young men. Yes, yes, yes. Because so, so you weren't in those jobs. You weren't. Uh, I know we had, we had some concrete guys call in earlier today. We had people who lay um, <clears throat> laying cables underground. Your dad, your, your your son didn't see you like out grinding in the fields. But what lessons did he get about work ethic by watching you? Wow, that's a great question. So about a year ago, he kind of 
blew me out of the water with this comment. He, we, we become big cigar buddies. So, you know, every couple of weeks we'll sit down and watch an episode of Band of Brothers and smoke a big stogie and we'll talk <laughs> philosophy and history. And he just said something. He said to me, Dad, this is, this is when you realize you can die. You, you know, you, you made it. You can die. You can go to heaven. He said, Dad, I'm so proud of you because you came here with nothing as an immigrant. Literally, we had nothing, nothing. I'm, I'm not joking, right? We borrowed five grand to move our stuff here. And, and I'm so proud of what you've created and how we live today and working in the White House. So, you know, he, he, he said to me, you, you, you always gave us what we needed uh, and never complained. So I think it's, you know, I, I'm not the lineman. I didn't get, get up at 4 a.m. and, you know, do a real job and get my hands dirty. But I worked my tail off and they went to good schools. They never, you know, wanted for anything. And I think, you know, the way we live today very, very comfortably, God bless Salem, God bless Newsmax, <laughs> God, bless, God bless President Trump, because without, you know, him bringing me into the White House, um, I wouldn't have the platform I have today. And he's actually said this. He said, um, I really understand your commitment to the president because of what he did for you. And when a 22-year-old says that, my gosh, you say, I'm, I'm, I'm okay, I've done it, I, I've succeeded, because yeah. the kids are the only thing that matter, really. Did, you, did your son feel the, the poverty when he was younger? Um, well, when, we was, when he was really young, we lived in Hungary, and we had literally no money. Um, and, but we lived in a village. We lived in a village outside of Budapest. And in comparison to the people around him, no, he, he, didn't, he didn't feel it because by, by comparison to the Hungarians who grew up under communism, uh, you know, we, we never went hungry. We had a nice house. We had a, yeah, an old car, never had a new car. But no, he, he, he just knows the difference from then to today. And, you know, lobster thermidor for Christmas and he gets <laughs> the the poor but never knew it is an interesting phenomenon. Uh, every World War oh, II veteran I've ever my talked childhood. to. Mike, sorry. That yeah, was no, my please. childhood. When, when I finally grew up and I realized how my parents really, really were not that well off, but I was spoiled rotten every Christmas. Mm. That's, that's how it, your, your kids should know nothing about money, in my opinion. But that's my take. Yeah. Yeah. Why? Why? What? What? Why? What? What does that do to a kid to think about money? Uh, it, constant insecurity. I mean, just just constant. But kids get enough bullying and they enough, you know, uh, hormones and does that girl like me and whatever. They, they've got enough to deal with and that that crappy teacher. You know, everybody's. You know, I had it as well. They've got enough to deal with for not to have a stable environment at home. Uh, could you, I just, I'd be a complete, if I, I'd be a completely different guy today, Mike, if I, if I knew the financial problems my parents had when I was a 10 year old, yeah. that, that should not, that should not be something. A kid shouldn't have to be worrying about, can my parents make the mortgage payment? They, they yes. shouldn't be living, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a you know, Kim Kardashian mansion with, with, you know, Bugatti Veyrons, but a 10 year old shouldn't, <laughs> shouldn't be worrying about whether their parents can, can make the car payment at the end of the month. They got enough to deal with as a child. Yeah, so it's interesting. So, so these World War II vets who they were poor and they didn't know it because that's all they knew, they didn't have yeah. social media. So a kid yes. today can be poor, but they oh know God. it. And that's, that's not good. It's like, it's like um, you, know, you know that pathetic uh, soy boy Miles Taylor, the guy who wrote the anonymous article, the most irrelevant piece of trash who... Uh, he was giving interviews uh, last week on CNN or MSNBC saying, uh, Donald Trump, if we re-elect him, he's going to be a dictator. And he could, he could even switch off the internet. And I thought, <laughs> that would be great. Could we just like switch off the internet for just like two weeks? That would, that would for the mental health of Western yeah. civilization, that would be great. Yeah, until we figure out what the heck is going on here. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't be opposed to it either. Um, what, so the reason I'm asking you all this is because we just got into a work ethic conversation about um, younger people today. But Okay, can, can I give you an example about work ethic? Yeah. I hired somebody to work for me. I'm not even going to say for which job because, you know, these people are so stinking litigious. I hired a, a young man from a conservative family who worked for me for about four months. And this individual... 
I took into the most amazing event ever. And we paid everything, the hotel, the travel, everything. Without telling me or getting my permission, he demanded from headquarters to get overtime for the plane travel to the location. <laughs> and you go, dude, there's entitlement. And then there's insane. I work, there's a phrase in Hungarian called splitting wood. It's called fovagash. And I did fovagash. I split wood for about 15 years. Get up super early, prep for class, go to that, you know, drive four hours to brag, drive four hours back. I worked my ass off for 20 years to get where, you know, I'd get a bit of recognition. People come, this kid had just come out of college, Mike, just come out of college and he thought he was owed overtime on the plane to go to this amazing event <laughs> it, it's out of control oh, that's of great control. okay well you just you just answered the question you didn't even know it you split wood yeah that's what yeah. you did that that yeah. like like the the how that like the, that could possibly like be the defining feature of dr sebastian gorka's life was the year you said you spent 15 years splitting what I thought when you said split what I thought that was going to be like a metaphor for like you just like went off on this guy but no you're like literally split what is a child no in my in my career I, I was doing you know two years and then you get the cool gig in the White House right yeah, yeah that's yeah, yeah, how yeah. it works yeah yeah not the idea that you walk out of college and you think I'm going to be an influencer I mean give me a break guys these people need a slap in the face. Yeah, we, we made a big mistake. <clears throat> yeah, I'm sure long ago, I may be romanticizing this, but a long time ago, I bet if you asked a kid what they want to be when they grow up, they say doctor, lawyer, teacher. Astronaut. And that's a good one. Then it was uh, professional athlete and like music singer. And I think we should have really put the kibosh. We, we should have been like, whoa, yeah. whoa, whoa. Yeah. But instead we were like, oh, okay, yay. And now it's degraded even more into influencer and I don't even know what. I think that's probably it. YouTuber. Yeah, YouTuber. <laughs> YouTuber. What, right. Like, what? Like, we're so far what, from. What, what, are, what are they saying about themselves? Yes. What is a human being saying? Because by the time, you know, you're 16, you're 17, you're 18, you, you, you count as a human being. And you're saying you're going to be a, quote, influencer. That means nothing. That is, that is the most shallow thing you could aspire to possible. It's really, and, and, you know, out of, what, a million people posting on YouTube, there's one Joe Rogan, there's one Tucker, uh, yeah. and you think you're going to be that person? Ah, uh, man, I think you're right. We, we, we kind of lost the plot. We, you know, it, it, it explains everything, all the problems we have today, what the Democrats are doing, the open border is we have had it far too good for far too long, my friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I want, I, I'll pivot here, but I'm just I'm yeah. having visions of like uh, like 12-year-old Sebastian splitting wood uh, out in the woods. I think that's such a cool image. Is that right? Am I, do I have that image right? I, I still love it. I, you know, we still have a real fire in my house. I still love to split wood. But when I was 10 years old, my Christmas gift, and I've got a photograph somewhere, but it's classified, my Christmas gift was an astronaut suit. And I have a picture of me in my astronaut suit next to the Christmas tree. So we have to aspire. And we have to inspire our kids to aspire. Yeah, superb. Okay. Um, let's go quick because I want to get to your article more. But what's your just thoughts on the um, Colorado thing? It's just more of the same. It fits into, you know, to use the legal phrase, a fact pattern from Operation Crossfire Hurricane, uh, spying on the Trump presidential campaign to uh, Mike Flynn, Navarro, Bannon, impeachment one, impeachment two, Mueller probe, raid on Mar-a-Lago, Alvin Bragg, Fannie Willis, Judge Chutkan, Jack Smith, Judge Engerong. It is just the latest you know, assault on our constitution. The, the idea that a man who wasn't even charged with insurrection, let alone convicted of insurrection, is to be removed from the ballot in a state 
because he committed an insurrection. I mean, that's just North Korea. That, that's Enver Hodges, Albania. That's, you know, Hanukkah's East Germany. And the fact that they're so, so lunatic that they say, oh, and you will not even be allowed to write his name yeah. in on yeah, the ballot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's Pyongyang. That, that's North Korea. You know, and, yeah. and, and it's interesting. Who said this? I think it was Dana Carino identified that out of the, um, what is it, the four, four to five split in the Supreme Court, the four who said this is lunacy and who actually had some serious dissension, they went they all went to the University of Denver and the five who said, Yes, remove him from the ballot, they all went to Ivy League colleges is that like right? yeah. It's is like that right? bingo, bingo. Wow, that that is something. Uh, so I'm sure this will get swatted down by the Supreme Court, right? But as he points, fact pattern, it's an escalation, which will continue up to and including, as you wrote last week, uh, assassination. Yes. And I, I, now, if on the front of Drudge, do you still ever go to Drudge or no? No, only when my producer sent me the front cover to show how delusional they are. <laughs> so this is justices flooded with threats. Oh, and God. I'm like, oh, um, a bunch of left-wingers are threatening you know, the Supreme Court to do the right thing. And the whole article is about Trump people, MAGA people threatening the court. And it's like, oh, come on. What, like, but this is this is all leading to violence. But who are going to be the ones who are violent? Well, again, fact patterns. Let's talk about BLM. Let's talk about Antifa. Let's talk about James Hodgkinson, who went with a hit list of only Republicans to that baseball field not far from where I'm sitting and managed to almost kill Steve Scalise, who had to walk in on crutches to Congress, you know, nine months later. Uh, let's talk about Nicholas Ruska, the man, the, the Democrat who traveled from California to Virginia with a Glock, with a knife, with zip ties to tie up Brett Kavanaugh, his wife and his children and kill them all. I mean, they, these are all Democrats. A, uh, you know, this is the, it's what Dennis Prager says. Whatever the left is accusing you of doing, they are actually already committing themselves. There is one party in America that has normalized violence against those they politically disagree with. And it's not the Republicans. It's not us. I mean, truly, we, we, we look at look at what the response. I mean, this is this should should be the wake up call to every decent person in America, especially every Jew. After October the 7th, who's on the side of the terrorists? Who's on the side of the terrorists? Not us. It's them. It's the left. I went to Congress last week. I saw the unedited video of what happened on October 7th. I saw the two little boys with their father run into the shower block as Hamas threw in a grenade. Father's body falls out. The little boys are screaming. One has a large black hole where his right eye should be because the grenade blew his eye out. They're screaming. They killed our daddy. They killed our daddy. As the Hamas terrorist goes to the fridge, pulls out a soda bottle and starts drinking in front of these two boys drenched in blood who just had their father murdered in front of them by that man drinking the soda. And, and who's, who's, who's on the side of the terrorists? Who's a, the Democrats are. The president of Harvard is on the side of the, oh, well, genocide, you have to put it in the right context. If there's any threat of political violence in this country on an institutional basis, it is from the Democrat Party, Mike. That was a good qualifier you put there on the end. Because there's always going to be a potential for something. Well, it's always lunatics, but I'm talking about yeah. institutionalized encouragement. I mean, let's yeah. go back. Kamala Harris raised bail money for BLM arsonists. <laughs> Name me one person of any official institutional capacity on the right who's encouraging violence, like Kamala Harris raising bail money for arsonists. Your article on AMAC, amac.us. Uh, so you said it means that we have passed far beyond, <clears throat> excuse me, far beyond any division based on party affiliation. GOP or Democrat, right or left. The division today is much more basic. What is that division? Yeah, it's, it, this is something I, I came to, you know, as I was hosting the, the radio show every day. Uh, you know, the old taxonomy of Republican, Democrat, or left and right, conservative or liberal, they're really relevant. You know, in 2016, we, we saw how we were. When, when we saw working class Democrats, from you know the Rust Belt, vote for the billionaire from Manhattan. Then all of that stuff just got jettisoned out of the window. What is the division? The division is 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 can be described on 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 two vectors. The first vector is the unaccountable elite, 
and the rest of us, you know, the line workers, the, 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 you know, the actual people who work in the factories, the people who build stuff. So there's an unaccountable elite, whether it's the likes of Miles Taylor or whether it's the, the deep state who don't give a damn who the president is, they will decide the future of this nation. Uh, the people who are completely unaffected by COVID, who keep, you know, who can door dash their, 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 their you know, food from the, the French laundry in, in uh, you know, San Francisco to, to their home in, you know, the most prestigious part of, of the United States. The people unaffected by crises, plus everybody else who suffers through it, that's, that's the one vector. And the second, the second prism to understand is, and it may sound hyperbolic, but when you boil it all down, it is very easy to demonstrate. We are living in the most perverse of times when our nation is run by those who hate the nation. I mean, you don't have defund the police. You don't have the 1619 project unless you have an elite that hates the country that they are running. And the dividing line is simply between those who hate America and those who love America. The, the, the unusual thing about my former boss, President Trump, is he, he, he can't be squeezed into uh, an ideological category. And remember, this is the first uh, leading uh, Republican candidate who strutted up and down a campaign stage waving a gay pride flag, right? That's, that's not very classic, you know, right-wing politics. Yeah. And then, you know, he hires Rick Grinnell as director of, of national intelligence. You know, he, he's not a paleocon. He's not a neocon. He's not a neoliberal. There's the one thing that defines him that's not ideological, which is why the working class votes for him. He gets up on that stage, and what do people see? They see a man who just loves America, sees it in crisis, and wants to fix it. The elite, and this is a phrase you know, Steve Bannon popularized so effectively, they have given into, in the 1980s, the concept of managed decline, meaning America was okay, but we are now truly the imperialistic nation, and the best we can do is we can manage the decline of America until other countries like China, Brazil, India take the pole position. Most of America still believes in America. So to answer your question briefly, the dividing line is very simple. Do you love America or do you hate America? That's America today. Hey, Mac. Hey, Mac.us. So it's very interesting because we a lot of patriots listening now, patriotic people. They can't fathom not loving America. Like, right. What do you mean, do you mean they don't love them? Like, it doesn't make sense. So it's, it's hard to analyze that person because I, I have no understanding of that idea. Well, it's also, I mean, this is part and parcel of, you know, the challenge for, for people like you and me. We're trying to analyze these people. And, and after Colorado, people are saying, okay, so, so what happens now? And what's the next 11 months going to be like? And, and I, I say to these people, <laughs> you know what? My, my thing is strategy. I love it. I eat, sleep, and drink strategy. But I can't channel insanity. I cannot, <laughs> no, seriously, I cannot yeah. predict what insane people will do. Because yeah. you know, what they are doing and even you know, sober people like Molly Hemingway have written that what happened two weeks ago with Kagan's 5,000-word article, with the full issue of The Atlantic, with the editorial board of The New York Times, they are prepar that it's preparation for assassination. You know, Molly Hemingway said that. I cannot channel or predict what lunatics are going to do. Because look at the facts, Pat, and I rattle off for you, from Crossfire Hurricane to Colorado. What have they done to President Trump? They've made him stronger than he's ever been. I mean, he's at 50% right now. Biden has shrunk to 30. And if the election were today, President Trump would have like a Reagan-esque 49 to 1 yeah, state yeah, blowout. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's, he's stronger than he's ever been. It's like Ben Kenobi at the end of, you know, the OG Star Wars. Strike me down and I will be stronger than you could ever imagine. So these people, if they were rational, Mike, they would have stopped this after the second indictment. But no, they do six more indictments. Then they do the Supreme Court. Then they write articles about how he's Caesar. And you know what happened to Caesar. These people aren't rational. They're lunatics. And I can't predict lunacy. That's why the next 11 months, you know, I just got to say to people, buckle up. You know, I've got my prepper food. I bought a sat phone yesterday. I've got, you know, everything I need to protect and provide for my family because these people are insane and it's going to get worse. 11 months to go, my friend. You have a six foot four reacher son to protect the homeland. <laughs> if, oh, yeah. If you need <laughs> and he knows how to use a gun.
yeah. Exactly. Uh, Dr. Gork, I hope you have a wonderful Christmas. Anything in particular you're looking forward to or doing? Uh, just hanging out with my family, not going anywhere, uh, celebrating the most important reason for the season. That Look, things are crazy down here, but we've already won. Thanks to what happened when uh, our Lord sent down his son to take our sins upon himself, and he willingly did so. He said, uh, not my will, but thy will be done. We, we've already won, thank, thanks to what Jesus did for us. We celebrate him born here on earth. So let's keep that in front of us. We, we have to try and save America, the greatest nation on God's green earth. But at the end of the day, we've already won, because our fuel is love. Love of country, love of God, love of family. Their fuel is hate, and love will always beat hate. Seb Gorka on the Twitter. Where else can we listen and learn? Uh, Substack. You can get all of my articles for free at sebastiangorka.substack.com. That's my whole name, sebastiangorka.substack.com. The show, America First, is on Rumble. Uh, we're Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Parler, Getter. And, of course, Newsmax every Sunday, and it's going to be a doozy. We're going to have Victor Davis Hansen on. You don't want to miss it. 7 p.m., 10 p.m. Eastern, uh, the Gorka reality check on Newsmax Sunday night. Merry Christmas, Dr. Gorka. Merry Christmas, Mike. I'm talking the new year. Thank you, sir. Thanks for listening to Breitbart News Daily. We have lots to do on tomorrow's show. I never got the rant about Coco Melon out today. It's probably for the bad. I probably shouldn't even do it tomorrow, to be honest. Um, yeah, maybe we won't. <laughs> I don't know. It won't make me any friends. Uh, maybe we'll do that. And we still have to talk. You know, ties are pretty good to work ethic. We're going to talk about uh, recruitment levels in the military. That's work. <laughs> That's one reason why there's not a lot of people joining the military. Work ethic. So we'll do that as well on uh, tomorrow's show. Breitbart News Daily. Hope you could be there. If not, if I don't see you till Christmas, Merry Christmas. Mike Slater, spread the word. I